Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. So what we may end up doing with this set of notes here is I don't plan on feeling like we have to get through all of this tonight. So if I end up getting halfway through and it's about time, we'll, we'll stop there and we'll continue next week with this exact same handout. So keep hold of this, um, put it in your Bible, Uh, in John chapter 10, and we'll just see how far the Lord allows us to get tonight, and we'll just continue from there. Now, if you remember previously, it's still the same opening context where Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it's after the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, they're all about um, the day after the Feast of Tabernacles ends, okay? In chapter 9, which is still that same day, roughly, uh, we saw him heal a blind man and dispute with the Pharisees about Moses. So John chapter 10, the context of John chapter 10, Jesus had just healed that blind man. It's like the same day. And he is disputing with the Pharisees who said, you're not following the word of God. We are the ones that follow the word of God. We have Moses to our teacher and we don't know what in the world you're teaching and they're just trying to destroy Jesus's what? His authority, okay? The book of John, almost every single page in the book of John, the theme seems to be jumping off the page at us, the authority that Jesus has. That's the the crux of the issue. That's the pivotal matter. That's the focus of the majority of the book of John is the authority that Jesus has as the Savior, as the Messiah, as God himself in human flesh. That's the, the key point of the book of John. So he continues and he's talking to the Pharisees. Now, just to kind of bring us up to speed, since it was January when we did verses 1 through 6, let's go ahead and just read verses 1 through 6, and we'll read up to verse 8, and that'll bring us up to where we are here today. So in John chapter 10, verse 1, and he's talking to the Pharisees, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the Judean religious leadership, okay? 
the, the hoity-toity crowd of leaders who think that they are the way, that they are the door, that they are the true shepherds of the sheep. And what Jesus is saying is directly pointed at them and their claim to authority. And we'll see this throughout the book of John, and we'll see this also here in John chapter 10 uh, with this discourse about the shepherds. Uh, verse number seven, picking up where we are here today. Then said Jesus unto them again. Okay, they didn't understand the first time. So he says to them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So if we read this just kind of casually, how we find ourselves, how I find myself sometimes reading the Bible in my daily you know, scripture reading habits, we just kind of skim through this. And we read into the context just, you know, okay, the sheep. He's talking about Christians, and he's talking to his disciples, obviously. But if we look into the context, neither of those is true. If we look into the context, he's talking about, he's talking to the, the unsaved Jewish religious leadership that are trying to just lambast him and saying, you did not heal this blind man. You're a false prophet, a false teacher. And Jesus comes back at them, and he says, everybody that came before me is thieves and robbers. The sheep do, don't hear the voice of the thieves and the robbers. They hear the voice of the true shepherd. And he says, I am the door. And so everything that Jesus is saying is pointed at them and pointed that their claim to authority is, in fact, false. There had been many false messiahs and ungodly religious leaders before Jesus. Remember who Jesus is speaking to here. Now, to kind of um, bring up something that we've talked about in the past in the book of John is this context, this idea of the Jews. A lot of people would look and say from the outside looking in that, well, John is an anti-Semitic book. Don't you know all these things that it says about the Jews? But the people that say those kind of things don't realize that every single person really that we find in the book of John is Jewish, those that believe and those that don't. And so when it says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, oftentimes it's not referring to all of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, but it is rather referring when it says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, to the orthodox, I'll, I'll, I'll use that word, the, 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 the religious leaders that lorded over the people with their power and authority and got the people to do what they wanted them to do in order to be quote unquote right with God. And it was just a scheme. And that's who Jesus is constantly finding confrontation with because they're saying, we have the authority. You don't. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the door of the sheep. Everybody that came before me is a thief and a robber. He is likely referring to the leadership of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is exactly who he's directly talking to, as well as false messiahs. Okay, all that ever came before me were thieves and robbers but I am the true shepherd, I am the door. That's kind of what he's saying here. This is clearly paralleled in Ezekiel chapter 34. Some of these are mentioned in the book of Acts, talking about the false messiahs. Others we read about in the pages of history. Okay, keep your finger or your, your hand out, okay, in the book of John chapter 10, and turn back to Ezekiel 34. In my study of John chapter 10, I've found some very interesting things that a lot of what Jesus says in John chapter 10 ties back to passages in Ezekiel. 
And it's kind of neat to see that. So keep your finger there in John chapter 10 or your, your, your handout and turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Basically, the whole chapter, pretty much, of Ezekiel 34 is really what Jesus is getting at and what Jesus is talking about. So let's look at some passages in Ezekiel 34. And then when we continue to go through John 10, you're going to continue to see correlations and parallels between Ezekiel 34 and what Jesus teaches and what he tells the Pharisees in John chapter 10. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the what? Shepherds of Israel. Okay, this is the context. If we look through Ezekiel 34, we're going to find ourselves in the right context to understand John 10. Prophesy unto the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be unto the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? And so here, who are the shepherds? Well, in the, in the context of John chapter 10, it is who? The Jews, the Jewish religious leadership. Okay? And the flock is not like our common understanding, oh, well, the flock, the sheep, that's the church. Many times that wording is used legitimately, scripturally, biblically to describe the church. But here in John chapter 10, the idea of the church has not been really revealed as of yet. Jew and Gentile, one body in the church. If we use the context of Ezekiel 34, which is exactly what I believe strongly John chapter 10 is getting at, the shepherds, the false shepherds, the evil shepherds, are the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leadership. And the sheep are the people of Israel, the common Jewish people. Okay, continuing here. Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. It just kind of brings into crystal clear clarity this picture of the Pharisees and the religious leadership, the, the quote-unquote the Jews, and the Greek word that I mentioned before, and we'll see it again in John chapter 10, is the eudioi. Okay? Eudioi is the Greek word used when it's translated the Jews. And oftentimes, the eudioi is not the common people of the land, the everyday Jewish Israeli, but the eudioi is descriptive of the Jewish religious leadership, the crooked le leadership that was lorded over the Jewish people, and they were false shepherds. Okay? Um, verse number five, and they were scattered because there is no shepherd and they became meat to all the beasts of the field wherein they were scattered. It's not talking about literal sheep. It's talking about people, it's talking about Israel. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill, my flock was scattered upon the face of all the earth and none did seek, uh, search or seek after them. Okay, so regarding Ezekiel, you know, the Babylonian captivity where the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, Jerusalem, they were all taken where? To Babylon, right? Here it's saying they were scattered over the whole face of the earth. Is this talking about Babylon? No. The context is eventually there's going to be a worldwide dispersion. The Jewish people are going to be taken into captivity. That's not really how we understand captivity, but it is. It's captivity worldwide. They're taken from the land. And now, since 1948, we're starting to see them come back. And there's prophecies about the dry bones, you know, and the skin coming together and the bones coming together, but there's no spirit within them. They're gathered back into the land, but in unbelief. And so this 
prophecy here in Ezekiel 34, it relates directly to what Jesus was saying in the first century to the Pharisees, and it has far-reaching implications to even today. The Jewish people, they have no shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd. All that came before are thieves and robbers. He says, um, in verse number 8, or let's go to verse number 7. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so this is God himself talking to Ezekiel, talking to the same people that Jesus is talking to in John chapter 10. You shepherds, listen to me. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd. Neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. God is saying, you shepherds, you're crooked, you're evil, you didn't feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, verse 10, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, and I will deliver my flock from their mouth. They may not be meat for them. Okay, and then uh, there's some prophecies in like verse number 12, verse number 13. I'm going to bring them from out of the people and gather them from all countries. Okay, that's an end times prophecy. All the people of Israel, all the, all the Jewish people being gathered together to the land from the four corners of the earth. Uh, and we see that happening in the last days, in the tribulation and at the second coming. All of the Jewish people being gathered back into the land. Um, okay, this is, this is neat. Look at verse 13. I mentioned, I will bring them from out the people and will gather them from the countries, will bring them into their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel. Verse number 15, I will feed my flock. I will cause them to lie down. Verse 16, I will seek that which was lost. Who does that sound like to you? It's Jesus. And the amazing correlation between John 10 and Ezekiel 34, it makes us understand what Jesus is talking about and who he's talking to. Okay, and there's more there. That's like half the chapter. Uh, feel free to look back into uh, Ezekiel 34. In fact, I want you to keep, keep a bookmark in Ezekiel 34 because in a little bit, we're going to go back. It might be next week, actually, before we get there, but I'm going to go back into Ezekiel 37 in a little bit. So if you, get, if you have a bookmark uh, in your Bible or a piece of paper, keep it in Ezekiel 34 and then turn back to John 10. Okay, now the other implication other than the Jewish religious leadership, which these would fall into, but false messiahs in the New Testament, okay? When Jesus said all that came before were thieves and robbers, they weren't the true shepherd. Here's, here's, two, here's two examples. In the book of Acts, the apostles are brought before the Jewish council in Jerusalem after preaching and healing in Jesus' name. The high priest is very upset. The apostles then preached the gospel to the council, and the Bible says that they were cut to the heart, okay, the Jewish religious leadership, and took counsel to slay them. And in chapter 5 of Book of Acts, uh, verse 33, Gamaliel, a respected Pharisee and doctor of the law, stands up and tells the council that if this is of God, it cannot be overthrown. But if it, uh, if it will fade away, if not, if it's not of God, it will fade away. And he continues and gives two examples of other quote-unquote messiahs, false messiahs, uh, that came before. Uh, and I have the verse here, Acts 5.37. For before these days rode, uh, rose up uh, Thudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, 
who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many obeyed him, were dispersed. These two men and their followers disappeared about as quickly as they came. Okay? Thudas and Judah, or, or Judas. Uh, if it were not for this recorded statement in the book of Acts, and the first century Jewish historian Josephus, we'd never heard of these guys. We would have never even heard of, of Thutis and, and, and Judas of Galilee. We never would, would have heard of them. Um, but they are false messiahs, false shepherds. Now in verse number 9, Jesus repeats this, this idea, I am the door. Now when he says I am the door, we, we like to take those statements that he makes, such as I am the door, and we'll kind of divorce that from context. We'll take that away from what it says in Scripture surrounding that statement. And we'll just say, Jesus says, I am the door. And we'll have a picture of a door. How nice. But we need to realize he's saying this to the Pharisees who think they are the door. That's why he's telling them this. He's saying, you think that you are the door. You think you are the way. You think you are the uh, accepted path to God. You're not. I am. I am the door. He says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Now I have a quote here from a book that I've uh, been helped with in, in, in studying the book of John. And the, the book is by a, an Israeli Jewish believer in Jesus and his name is uh, Ellie, uh, Ellie Lizorkin Eisenberg. There you go. Quite a name. Uh, anyway, in his book, this is the quote about this, uh, this passage. Those who came to the people of Israel before Jesus, given the overall context of John's gospel, were the current Jerusalem rulers, the evil shepherds of Israel, as we read in Ezekiel 34. They claimed that they alone were the proper entrance to the sheepfold. <clears throat> They were the door. If someone was to enter, he must come through them. Jesus says that this is most definitely false. He himself is the door, not them. He is the way. Whoever enters through him will find refuge, okay, be saved, and sustenance, true life resources. Only Jesus has the, the, the good of his sheep in mind, unlike the evil imposters, the Jerusalemite leadership of the Udioi, okay? So, a couple things we can learn from this passage. Satan's goal, don't, don't be fooled, Satan's goal is, is nothing but to kill and to destroy. He hates you. He hates you with a passion. He's not your buddy. He's not your friend. He doesn't want to make you feel good. He doesn't want to make you have a good time. His ultimate goal is to kill you and to destroy and to steal. And that's what he's all about. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He comes as an angel of light, you know. And so, so often... We're, we're tricked by his masquerade. Sometimes willingly, we allow ourselves to be tricked um, by him, but it's always good for us to, as Paul says, not be ignorant of his devices, to know what the wiles of the devil are, okay? His plans, his schemes. I had a, a, a teacher in college who said some of the most chilling words or one of the most chilling statements is that Satan has a personal plan for your life, okay? Now, God does. God has a plan for you, but guess what? So does Satan. A, yep, a personal plan for your life. 
And so we need to be aware of this. You know, we need to be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, as, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he make, make, might make friends with. No. Seeking whom he might devour, right? And so when we read all of this, we see the shepherds, we see the people, but we need to see Satan behind it because he's the one that's behind all of this. The idea of religion, not scripturally, okay? So like the word religion is used twice, I believe, in the New Testament. And religion in the New Testament is the same Greek word that's used for worship, okay? So the idea of religion, the idea that we can come to God, that we can make a way to God, is, is, is a lie from the pit of hell, okay? And that's what has gone on throughout basically all religions of the world. Bible Christianity is God came to us. God made a way to us. God gave us a free gift, and all we have to do is receive it by faith. Everything else is, is, is thieves and robbers, and um, we need to understand that distinction. The, the waters get so muddled, you know, with like televangelists and people on TV and people that you meet and people that are cult leaders that sound like they're not cult leaders <laughs> because they use the same terminology, and then you find out that what they believe and what they teach uh, in reality is, is satanic, you know? And so we need to realize that if anything doesn't line up with this book, we need to be wary of it. We need to avoid it like the plague. Um, and so not only does the, the thief come to kill and steal and destroy, but that's ultimately, that's Satan's goal. That's Satan's goal for you and for me. Jesus' goal, in contrast, is to give you abundant life. It's interesting to think about that because there's lots of passages that talk about um, life scripturally, and I think I've touched on this before. I've talked about it before. But just like Mark has talked about death, okay, and the biblical idea of death is, is separation, the flip side of that is life is not just having a pulse because we're dead spiritually before we're born again, before we accept Jesus as our Savior, before we uh, come to him in repentance and faith, you know, we're dead spiritually. And so what happens when we get life spiritually? John 3.16 talks about eternal life. And here Jesus talks about, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Okay? Um, it's just an amazing thought. More abundantly would normally be kind of like redundant, you know? That they might have more life and that they might have more life abundantly. But it describes exactly what Jesus offers. And that life is not just, okay, I'm going to have a better pulse now. I'm going to live longer. I'm going to have a better, better health and better physical well-being. That's not what he's talking about. Life, scripturally, is our connection to God. Life, scripturally, is the fullness of blessing associated with God's presence. And so death, like for instance, when Adam and Eve ate of that tree, as Marcus said, they didn't, they didn't keel over in a second and die. They didn't fall on the, on the ground and then, you know, some animal had to come up and bury him. <laughs> I don't know if that would happen or not, but, you know, that's not what happened. But they did die instantly, spiritually. In that very instance, what did they lose? They lost the fullness of blessing associated with being connected to God's presence. Um, our pastor has taught on, on uh, spiritual death before, and I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure this was something that he said, not something that Mark said. But when you're connected to God, Okay, you have, this, you have this life, you have this connection to God. 
Um, but when that's severed, that's when we saw Adam and Eve become mortal. They began to decay. Uh, you know, sin, it, just a, every single thing that is decaying and, and, and falling apart and corrupt and, and, and dying, that all has its association with that lifeline to God being severed spiritually. And so now we have that connection restored. Our bodies are still going to decay because what? We're sinners, right? We still have this flesh. We still have the, you know, Adam's flesh that we inherited, but we now have a spiritual life inside of us that is going to take us to the other side. We're going to be able to be in heaven with the Lord forever in a glorified body. And in that day, when we receive that glorified body, it's going to match up with what we have in, in, internally uh, with the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that's what Jesus offers. He comes that we might have life and to have it more abundantly. And in contrast, Satan wants to kill. He wants to destroy. And so whenever, you know, something comes into your life that you think, oh, that's kind of, I don't know. Think to yourself, Satan has come to kill and to destroy. And, and, and don't be fooled by, by his devices, okay? All right. Any questions or comments? Sure. I've heard some people say that. Um, that's what it translates to in English. That's what the Greek may very well be. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily. S some have said he's saying he's claiming that he's God when he says the words "I am." I don't think that he's claiming to be God in saying those words. I mean, maybe possibly in the one instance, in 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 uh, late, late yeah, the later in this uh, yeah chapter chapter eight. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, the context of that, where he's, he's saying, I existed, not only I was before Abraham, but before Abraham, I am. That states deity in a way that is not necessary for it to be, oh, he's repeating Exodus. He's repeating what the burning bush said. Um, that's not necessary for his statement to be truly claiming to be deity. And the reason I say that is this. You might not realize this, but what God said out of the burning bush was not, I am that I am, okay? And this might be controversial, I don't know. But the Hebrew is, ehyeh asher ehyeh. I will be that which I will be. It wasn't necessarily present tense. It was future tense, okay? Um, now, the name Jehovah uh, refers to a phrase that, you know, he who was, he who is, and he who will be, the self-existent one, but what God said out of the burning bush is, you know, telling Moses, tell Pharaoh that Ehia hath sent me to you, you know, and, and in Hebrew that means I will be. So to say that when Jesus says I am, I am, I am, which in Greek, you know, is the present tense, he is saying I am, but I don't think that it necessarily has to be tied to what God told Moses out of the burning bush. I think that we can um, find that Jesus' claim to being the one true God, the God of Israel, um, can be found in the context of those statements, and it doesn't necessarily need to be exclusively in his statement before Abraham was, I am, just those two words, I am. Um, it could be understood that way. I'm not saying that it can't, because I'm not a first century, you know, Jewish Greek, <laughs> you know, uh, speaker. 
And so um, my understanding of it is, is, is that, but it, it could be. And I don't want to give a blanket statement saying that it's not. It could be. Um, but my understanding of it is it's not necessary to be interpreted that way because of the Hebrew in, a, in the book of Exodus. Yes? What I'm saying is my understanding of it is I'm like 95% sure that there's no connection with Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am, and the tell Pharaoh that I am that I am hath sent thee. Okay? In my opinion, I don't see necessarily a connection there, but I'll leave a margin of error that it could be because I'm not a first century Greek speaker. because he's saying that he, he existed presently before Abraham ever was born. <laughs> so that in itself it basically is, is, is claiming that. Um, and they understood it that way. Uh, certainly they understood it that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Whether it was because he was saying that he was pre-existent before Abraham or whether it was because of that, that statement, I am, uh, I can't say for certain that it wasn't. So it very, well, it very well could be, but my leanings is towards the fact that he says, before Abraham ever was born, I am presently there. Well, I don't recall, and I'm not trying to give you a hard time here. Oh, no, curious. somebody's got to do it. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I don't know if it's Matthew or what, but it, it, the same idea, if he said, something, they pick up stones to, to stone him, mm -hmm. he says, for what deed are you... That's exactly what we're going to read here in John 10. Exactly. Absolutely, hundred percent. Definitely, Jesus absolutely claimed to be God, and we're going to look at that either here um, tonight or probably more likely next week. But numerous, numerous times in the Scripture, Jesus claimed to be God, and it was understood that way. Um, I'm just saying that it might not have to do specifically with God's name out of the burning bush. It could. It could. It was understood that way, and I can't say dogmatically for certain that it, that it wasn't. But Jesus absolutely, I mean, I'd stake my life on it. He claimed to be God, you know, more than, o over and over and over, he claimed to be God. And one of those passages is going to be right here in John chapter 10 that we'll look at in a second. Um, absolutely, good questions. Okay, any, any other Questions, comments, discussion? Did I answer your question sufficiently? Yeah. Okay. 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 So, verse number 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now, listen to this real quick. Why in the world would he say, I am the good shepherd? Now, when we look at this passage just by itself, like we normally would do, you know, in 21st century America, we just take a passage, oh, I am the good shepherd. Isn't that nice? We'll have a picture of a lamb, and Jesus, you know, we'll have the words good shepherd. Why is he the good shepherd? Because it's in direct contrast to the evil shepherds. This whole passage ties back to Ezekiel 34, 
Woe unto you, wicked shepherds of Israel, you evil shepherds, you don't feed my flock, you scatter away. My flock is being destroyed because you don't care about them, you evil shepherds. And Jesus said, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. I am the true shepherd of Israel. And it's, the reason for that is because he's contrasting himself against the evil shepherds, the Judean religious leadership uh, of, of the Jewish people. He that is an hireling, I'm sorry, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. You see the difference? When we read through Ezekiel 34, what do the, what do the, uh, the, the evil shepherds do? They feed themselves. They feed themselves with the flock, <laughs> you know? And then they scatter when danger comes and they leave the flock to be destroyed, to be killed. Jesus, in contrast, says, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for my sheep, okay? Verse number 12, but he that is an hireling, okay, one that's a servant, some employee, some intern that they got to watch the sheep, okay? And, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, Seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he's an hireling and careth not for the sheep. This is also a direct attack against the Judean religious leaders. They're a bunch of interns. They're a bunch of hired servants. They don't own the sheep. And Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. I own the sheep. They are mine, and I will give my life for them. And it's not just Jesus telling the, 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 the Pharisees a nice story. He's attacking them, telling them that they are the wicked shepherds. They are the hireling. They are the ones that are the uh, object of his illustration. Okay, now, real quick here, this, this guy, and, and, and Mark has said before, this is his favorite false messiah, which is interesting, an interesting phrase. But this man, Shabbatai Zvi, he really illustrates this idea of the hireling that cares not for the sheep. Okay. 22 years old, and this was in 1600s, 22 years old in Smyrna, Zvi, a mystic rabbi in training, began declaring that he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And this is kind of the epitome here of Jesus' point, the hireling cares not for the sheep and leads them astray, and he's a false, uh, uh, an evil shepherd, a false Messiah. He and his followers were eventually excommunicated from Judaism and exiled to Smyrna by the local rabbinical leadership when his claims to messiahship became too bold. Ten years later, in Constantinople, he met a false prophet named Abraham Yahini, who verified Zvi as the Messiah. Yahini is said to have forged a manuscript in archaic characters, which he alleged bore testimony to Shabbatai's messiahship. There's nothing new under the sun. There's lots of forged archaic documents in false religions, <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, it reads, I, Abraham, was confined in a cave for 40 years, and I wondered greatly that the time of the miracles did not arrive. And then was heard a voice proclaiming, A son will be born in the Hebrew year 5386, the year 1626 CE. Now this is you know, written by some unbelievers who would not use the term uh, AD. Okay? They use CE instead. To Mordecai's V, and he will be called Shabbatai. He will humble the great dragon. He, the true Messiah, will sit upon my throne. And this was written by Abraham Yahini in 1651. Zvi declared himself the one without end. He met a man known as Nathan of Gaza. Nathan claimed to be the risen Elijah in order to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. 
What happened to Elijah? So this is the, he's risen from the dead, but he didn't really die. <laughs> okay, we talk about Elijah here, Passover, that's why that stuff is there. I'm doing Passover presentations. Um, yeah, okay, so this guy claims to be Elijah risen from the dead, who um, did not die, um, but was taken into heaven. Um, in 1665, Nathan announced that the Messianic age would begin the following year. Samuel Primo, who became Shabbatai's secretary, directed in the name of the Messiah the following uh, circular to all of the Jews. The first begotten son of God, Shabbatai Tevi, or Svi, Messiah and Redeemer of the people of Israel, to all the sons of Israel, peace, since ye have been deemed worthy to behold the great day and fulfillment of God's word by the prophets, your lament and sorrow must be changed into joy and your fasting into merriment, for ye shall weep no more, rejoice with song and melody and change the day formerly spent in sadness and sorrow into a day of jubilee because I have appeared, yay! But then, in 1666, Shabbatai was taken from Abydos to Adrianople where the sultan's vizier gave him three choices. One, subject himself to a trial of his divinity in the form of a volley of arrows, hmm, in which if the archer should miss, his divinity would be proven. Uh, secondly, be impaled. Okay, that's a nice, nice second choice there. Or third, he could convert to Islam. And so the next day, Zvi came before the sultan, cast off his Jewish garb and put on a Turkish turban, and he converted to Islam. Zvi's wife and approximately 300 families among his followers also converted to Islam. You see, the wolf comes and the shepherd flees. And so um, this was after Jesus, okay, about 1600 years, 1700 years after Jesus, but nonetheless, it is a good example of a bad shepherd, okay, of an evil shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so now I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now, this is somewhat of an interesting passage. My understanding of this passage was challenged when I studied it, and I'll give you two kind of applications of this idea. First, the general application, the mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in. Okay, that sounds good. Sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in, and there'll be one shepherd. Um, this was not revealed in ages past. Gentiles partake of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. They are now one with the Jew in the church. That's all true. Okay, absolutely. Jew, Gentile, or people that are in between like me, we get to partake of the blessings the spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. They're not going to be literally physically fulfilled in the church. That's still for the nation of Israel. But the Gentiles can be seeds of Abraham by faith, spiritually, not physically. You don't become a Jew, but you become a partaker of the spiritual blessings. You become grafted in. And that can be, that can be taken from this passage as kind of like a secondary application. But what's the, what's the context teaching us? Listen to this, and this might, this might kind of jar you for a minute from your understanding currently of this passage, but after we look at Ezekiel, you'll see that this is, I believe, the, the right understanding. That the other sheep, okay, that must be brought in, there'll be one fold, one shepherd, 
is speaking of Israel and Judah and all of the Jewish people all over the world being reunited in the rule of the Messiah. Do you remember how we were talking about in Ezekiel chapter 34 that the Jewish people would be scattered everywhere? Okay? And God's saying, I will gather them, I will bring them, and I will feed them, and they will all be one. The church is not in the picture in Ezekiel 37, or Ezekiel 34. Um, let's look at Ezekiel 37. Okay, keep your finger in John chapter 10, and turn back to your, your bookmark there in Ezekiel chapter 37. Okay, look at verse 15 of Ezekiel chapter 37. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel and his companions. Verse 17, and join them one to another into one stick and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, the northern kingdom, and will put them even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king to be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Who was Jesus talking to in John chapter 10, and where was he? He was in Jerusalem talking to the Jerusalemite, okay, Judean religious leaders. They looked at Israel, quote-unquote, which had to do also with the Samaritans, okay? The northern kingdom, we don't care about them. They're second-class citizens, and they wouldn't even really probably think of them as true Israelites. Jesus is saying, I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring in, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. They shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided in two kingdoms any more at all. Verse 23. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. Now listen to this. Verse 24. And David my servant shall be king over them. And in Mark's understanding, this is literally David. This is not Jesus. This is David. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have what? One shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Amazing correlations between Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, and John chapter 10. And I don't think that there's any coincidence that all of these things have the same subject matter. The evil shepherds, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, which is the Lord himself, and the regathering of the nation of Israel. Um, the sheep here are not Christians, and I mentioned this before. And we look at this and we think, okay, 
sheep, uh, Christians, um, believers. Well, here in the context, the Judean religious re leadership, the religious rulers, they have nothing to do <coughs> with Christians. They have nothing to do with believers. Who are they the false shepherds of? They're the false shepherds of Israel. They're the false shepherds, the evil shepherds of the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel, 36, or Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37, the sheep is who? Israel. And with the uh, prophecy in Ezekiel 37 of the regathering of Israel from all nations and the nation of Israel and Judah, okay, that's like Judea and Samaria, which by the way, interestingly enough, what is Judea and Samaria today? The West Bank, okay? And the nation of Israel, quote unquote, is the rest of modern day Israel's borders, okay? Biblically, at the time of the second coming, and this may happen, I'm not sure exactly where in between, but by the end of the tribulation, the second coming, guess what's going to happen to the nation of Israel? It's going to be one nation again. No longer Judah and Israel, like that division that happened, okay, with the sons of Solomon, but it's going to be restored. Not only the, Israel, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah being one, but all of the Jewish people worldwide gathered back to the land, and there will be one king, one shepherd, and that's one and the same person, Jesus. Okay, and then we have um, all Israel will be one, those dispersed in the northern kingdom in Samaria, this is what I mentioned, and those in Judah, and this will occur at the second coming. Okay, any questions or comments on that section? There's some, some hefty stuff there. Okay, all right, let's look at verse number 17. Therefore, doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Do you know that Jesus' earthly ministry has, at this point, uh, let's see, about another year left in it? Okay? I'm just trying to ascertain when in his earthly ministry he began to say that he's going to die and rise again. And it was pretty early on as far as we understand it. It wasn't like weeks or months before his death, but it was long before that he mentioned that not only was he going to die, but that he was going to rise again. And interestingly here, this commandment have I received in my father. Interestingly here, this gives an answer to the age-old question, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? Exactly. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but you guys know that, that Holy Land experience uh, in Florida, I think it got sold to like CBN or TBN or something, that they used to have the temple, reproduction, um, Marvin Rosenthal uh, owned it. There was an article in, I think it was, was it the Times of Israel? I don't know, it was some kind of Jewish publication, secular Jewish publication. It wasn't believing you know, or Christian by any standard. But anyway, the organization there, the Holy Land Experience, is a Christian organization. I'm not sure if they're still there or not. I, last I heard, they sold it to a, uh, a Christian television network. Um, anyway, there was this Jewish journalist who went to the Holy Land Experience, and he was reporting on it. He was going to tell what his experience was like. 
and he asked one of the people that worked there, okay, one of the workers at the Holy Land Experience, this Jewish man who is, who is lost, who is unbelieving, he asked the worker, who killed, who killed Jesus? And the worker's response was this, well, we all had a part in it. The Jews, they, you know, yelled to have him crucified, and the Romans put the nails in, and so we're all guilty, we all had a part in it. And that man walked away lost and confused, okay? Biblically, it wasn't the Jews. Biblically, it wasn't the Romans. Biblically, nobody killed Jesus, okay? Jesus laid down his life. He gave his life voluntarily. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. There was an interesting book. <laughs> okay, um, I don't know if you guys have seen the book, the, the newer one that we were given at our staff conference, uh, written by uh, Etan Barr, the, uh, one of the men from One for Israel. He wrote a book uh, re uh, refuting rabbinic objections to Christianity and Messianic prophecies. Anyway, he wrote another book called God Killed Jesus, you know, <laughs> as an answer to the question, you know, um, and it was meant to get attention of those that would, you know, I guess wanting somebody to pick up, pick it up and read it. Um, but it was the father's plan, was it not? Um, anyway, so biblically, Jesus laid his life down voluntarily. Nobody took it from him. So nobody can be called... <clears throat> As through the ages, Jewish people have been labeled Christ killers. That's not the case. Jesus gave his life. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't, you know, didn't he tell Peter, you know, I, I could have called, you know, 12 legions of angels presently, you know. Um, put your sword away, Peter, you know. <laughs> Jesus laid down his life voluntarily. Then there was division, therefore again, among the Jews for these sayings. Now, why do you think there was division? Well, there was division because there was an argument among his audience. There was an argument among the Jewish religious leaders. He's telling the truth. Maybe he's the Messiah. No, he's not. And that's division. Okay, so he caused this division between those in the Jewish religious leadership because some of them were believing him. Some of them were on his side. And many of them said, he hath a devil and he is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said... These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Remember what just happened that same day? Okay, just moments prior to this whole conversation, Jesus healed the blind man. Now, go ahead and turn your page over, or go to page number two. Okay. I'm guessing when we get through this um, portion, this is a little bit of a, a side note, but... I think it's important, given the context of what has just happened, with the healing of the blind man and the Jewish people saying, can, can somebody that's you know, doing the power of the devil do these things? To give you some, some, some Old Testament um, understanding to the idea of healing somebody that is blind and otherwise. There were three main things in the book of Leviticus that caused uncleanness and made a person cut off and unapproachable. Number one, physical deformity such as blindness. Okay, somebody that was lame or maimed or deaf or blind or dumb, okay, they were an outcast from the Israelite society. In fact, they could not bring an offering to the priests in the Levitical system. 
They had to have somebody else do it on their behalf because of their physical condition. Secondly, an issue of blood. Okay, and this is all in the book of Leviticus. What makes somebody unclean? Okay, somebody that has an issue of blood, uh, you know, blood coming out somewhere. Then thirdly, leprosy. Now what's interesting about these three conditions, these three physical conditions, all three of these, when healed, are credentials to prove one's messiahship. And the Jewish people knew this, and they should have known it. Because there's certain things that are to be done, certain uh, criteria, certain ways that things are to be ordered in the, the Levitical law that are there only for when somebody gets healed from such a thing. Um, never were these done outside of Jesus. So for instance, the healing of blindness, the healing of an issue of blood, the healing of leprosy. Okay? Now, we did have Naaman the Syrian who was healed by uh, going into dunking in the River Jordan seven times. Um, and we also had, and I have here listed in a second, um, both Miriam and Moses. They had brushes with leprosy. Okay? Uh, very brief, however. But none of those three, Miriam, Moses, or Naaman, were Levitically cleansed. None of them were gone through the proper procedures to be pronounced clean. Okay? It was, it was separate how those things occurred. The first time that any of those were done, and the only time, I'd argue, that any of those were done, being pronounced Levitically clean from any of these things, is when Jesus came on the scene. Of the 30 times that blind or blindness is mentioned in the Old Testament, okay? So if you look up blind or blindness in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, you'll see about 30 times that the word blind or blindness is used. Nearly a third of those verses are in Isaiah and refer to Israel's blindness and the Messiah healing blindness in the book of Isaiah. So, the amazing truth of Jesus healing and healing the unclean, specifically leprosy. I want to share some things with you out of Isaiah 53 um, because of how this uh, chapter progresses and specifically this comment that how can one that is that is uh, possessed by a devil open the eyes of the blind? How can he heal somebody? And the reason that I want to bring this up now is because I think it's a really neat, um, it's a really neat passage that I want to talk to you about and there's no healing of leprosy recorded in the book of John. It's recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but not in John. And yet we have this, this account where the blind man in John chapter 9 gets healed. And so there's things that are in one gospel, but they're not recorded in the others. And so I wanted to talk about this now because we're not going to touch it on John otherwise. So, leprosy. It was an inward disease. By the way, what is leprosy a picture of in the Bible? Corruption, okay. I'm looking for a three-letter three word that starts with S. Sin, yes. Okay, sin. Sin, corruption, yes. Okay, so it's an inward disease. Jesus said it's not what uh, goes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of his heart. Murder, envying, strife, wickedness, adultery, all of those things, they come out from the heart, Jesus says. And leprosy, it's not just on the surface. It's not just, oh, look at that guy. He's got leprosy on his skin. It starts inwardly, okay? It's got all of this um, inward uh, part. What you see on the outward is just on the surface, literally. 
It was a loathsome disease. And by the way, with, uh, with sin, you know, sin is not just on the surface. Where does sin come from? Well, it comes from within, comes from the heart, absolutely. Now, there's some things that you might not know about leprosy here. It could be felt, okay? It came with uncomfortable numbness, aches, and unhealing wounds. Many of the wounds that the leper would have were the result of numbness the disease produced. They couldn't feel certain things, and because of that, they would get injuries, and, you know, arms would fall off and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, once the sense of pain was gone, the lepers could be cutting or burning their flesh without even knowing it. Likewise, what does sin do to us? It stupefies us, and then when, we, when our conscience is numb, it wounds. Okay, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying before about Satan. He comes as an angel of light. He wants you to think that everything's okay. We become desensitized to sin, and we think, oh, it's not that bad. And then, you know, before we knew it, our arms cut off. Okay, not literally, but like what would happen to a leper, uh, they became numb, literally, and uh, couldn't even know when they were being uh, injured or hurt. It had a terrible odor. The aroma would drive others away, but the infected person could not escape it, and at other times didn't even notice it. We don't realize how stinky our sin is, don't, do we? We become used to it. Um, lepers didn't even like the smell of each other, much like when two sinners get together, right? We notice somebody else's sin before we point the finger at us. We'll see, you know, the mode in somebody's eye and forget about the beam that's in our own. And uh, the sins of the other often repulse them, even though their own sin is just as rancid. It also could be heard, and this was kind of something I didn't know before I uh, studied this. It attacked the vocal cords, causing a raspy voice. Okay, so when you had leprosy, it attacked your voice, so that you sounded like you uh, had a problem with your voice. In the same way, sin finds its easiest escape through the tongue. That's why James warns us of its power. Even Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Sin can be heard. Oftentimes it comes out in, you know, anger or boasting or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, James calls it, uh, you know, like a seed of wickedness uh, in, our, in our members, our, our, our tongue, our mouth. Leprosy also finds its way into clothing and the walls of the house. You know all those passages where it talks about that kind of stuff? You know, if there's like yellow spots on the wall or, you know, all this kind of stuff. Leprosy can, can, that uncleanness can spread uh, to the house. Likewise, sin can manifest itself in the way we dress and what we do with and in our homes. All of these ways, leprosy was loathsome. It could not be kept hidden, and like leprosy, our sin will find a way out and will be, will be exposed. There's no hiding the disease, especially from God. It was a separating disease. Okay? They were separate. They were cast off. They were separate from the rest of the society because they had this loathsome disease. And yet, what does sin do? Separates, separates us. Not necessarily from each other, although it can, but primarily separates us from God. We're cut off. Lepers could not cure themselves. And then the fifth similarity that sin has with leprosy is Jesus can heal the leper. I'm thankful for that. Now, there are Levitical procedures for pronouncing an unclean and a cleansed leper, okay? 
There's ways that are given in Leviticus 13 and 14, and, and, and Leviticus 14 in its almost entirety is devoted to leprosy. Uh, those passages in, in Leviticus 14 are devoted to uh, what's clean, what's unclean, how to pronounce something clean once it's been cleansed. And that's kind of a hypothetical thing because never in the history of the world has anybody gone to the priest and said, I had leprosy, but now I'm clean. Can you go through the Levitical process to pronounce me Levitically clean for my leprosy? Never until what? Until Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. Why did he do that? Well, in Leviticus, uh, that passage is there specifically so you can know when a miracle has happened. And that leprosy was looked at by Jewish people back in the day to be something that could only be cured by the Messiah. That one of the credentials of the Messiah is that he would not only heal the blind, as we saw in John chapter 9, but that he would heal leprosy. Uh, the latter is hypothetical, okay, the, the, the being pronounced clean. It's never recorded in the New, until the New Testament. And I talked about Moses and Miriam, but they weren't Levitically cleansed. And then Naaman the Syrian was also not Levitically cleansed. But he, uh, what he did in, by obeying what Elijah told him uh, it was a picture of, of the law, you know, having obedience to what was told him to do. But then uh, when Jesus healed the leper, and sent him to the priest to be pronounced clean, this is the first time in history that this is recorded as happening. Now, the Jews expected the Messiah to heal leprosy because of, get this, Isaiah 53. Hmm, I wonder why. Is the word leprosy anywhere in Isaiah 53? No, okay. I want to show you something interesting. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, and I think that probably we'll be there for the rest of the study. We'll, we'll end with this our study of Isaiah 53. And that way we'll pick up after this um, next week. Okay, some things about Isaiah 53. One of the questions, objections that Jewish people have to Jesus being the Messiah is if he is the Messiah, if Jesus really is the promised Messiah, then why have our people, why has Israel rejected him. My answer to that is 700 years before the Messiah came, it was told us, it was prophesied that Israel would reject him. In uh, Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And listen to this part. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The we is Israel. The him is the Messiah. When it says we esteemed him not, it literally means we didn't give him a thought. We didn't even consider him. Okay. Flip your page over there. This is kind of what I want to get to, verses 4 through 8. It says in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you ever notice that verse begins and ends with all? Alan's the one that told me that, and I, I never noticed it before. But He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Anybody seen anything about leprosy yet? No, okay. Verse number eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off, killed, out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. All right. Listen to this. Within Judaism, the Talmud, the Jewish writings, there is a teaching that the Messiah would actually be a leper. The Messiah is called the leper scholar. The Messiah, what is his name? This is from the Talmud. The rabbis say the leper scholar or the leper Messiah. As it is said, surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. Now, the word stricken appears twice here in Isaiah 53. And the word that's used in Hebrew oftentimes has to do with being stricken with leprosy. Now, it can, be, it can mean, you know, stricken like you, you strike something, like hit with something, which is certainly what this implies. He was stricken, he was beaten, he was wounded, he was killed on a cross. But they understood, the rabbis understood, this having to do with leprosy. The word stricken, nagua, means touched, plagued, smote, or stricken. And it, it, it has a reference to leprosy. It can refer to leprosy. I don't believe it does, but there's an interesting correlation between it here. Um, I mentioned verse 6, all to all, uh, begins and ends with all. All we like sheep have gone astray, he died for all. But then in verse 8, the transgression, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Huh, interesting. Now, let's look at verse number 9, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. And I want to talk about the Messiah's offering, okay? In verse number 9, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He's already been killed, and yet his days are going to be prolonged. How in the world is that supposed to happen? Resurrection, right there. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, back up in verse number 10. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Did you know that there's nine different words in the Hebrew for offering? Nine, at least. And this one word, okay, this one word for offering, it's a very special word. It's a very specific word. It's the word asam. The word asam is trespass offering an offering for sin. 
specifically a trespass. Keep your finger there in Isaiah. I'm having you do this a lot, aren't I? Turn over to Leviticus 14. I want to share with you a verse that should shed some light on this whole idea of the Messiah cleansing leprosy, healing leprosy, healing diseases, healing sicknesses, and also being an offering for sin. And if you're anything like, like I was when I understood this, it just blew my mind. Uh, Leviticus chapter 14. In verse number one, just to get some context, and we're going to focus in on one verse. But this is the Lord speaking unto Moses, the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Did that ever happen before Jesus? Not Levitically. Okay, nobody was brought to a priest and pronounced clean from their leprosy until Jesus. And this chapter 14 was written for Jesus to cleanse that leper that uh, was pronounced clean. The first time and the only time that it's recorded ever happening. And it's to prove Jesus' Messiahship, just as his healing of the blind man. The priest shall go forth out of the camp if the plague of the leprosy be healed in the leper. You can just imagine when that guy shows up, Jesus healed me of my leprosy. I'm here to be pronounced clean. You're like, what? How do we do that? You know, dust off the scrolls. What are we supposed to do? Okay. The priest shall go forth out of the camp. And they had to do this for the first time. They had never done it before. Then the priest shall command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive and clean and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. And one of the birds will be killed in an earthen vessel running over. Okay, and the, and the, and the, um, go down to verse number seven. He shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times. Okay, the blood of this offering. And shall be pronounced him clean and, and shall let the living bird loose open into the field. And he that is cleansed shall wash his clothes. And on the seventh day, he shall shave his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. And on the eighth day, he shall take uh, two he lambs without blemish, uh, three-tenths deals of fine flour for a meat offering. The priests that make them clean shall uh, present the man that's being made clean. And those things before the Lord, the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, the priest shall take one he lamb, uh, an offering for him for a what? A trespass offering. Okay. Uh, verse number 13, he shall slay the lamb in the place where he shall kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the holy place. Same word. Uh, as for the sin offering is the priest, so is the trespass offering. Or there it is right there, the trespass offering. It is most holy. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering. Trespass offering, verse 14, is the same Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah 53, that Jesus is going to make his soul an offering for sin. This trespass offering the priest shall put on the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, verse 14, and upon the thumb of his right hand, upon the great toe of his right foot. Uh, skip down to verse number 25. He shall kill the lamb of the trespass offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering. Okay, and this is the same thing. To put it on him that is to be cleansed. All right. Now. Like I said, there are at least nine different Hebrew words for various offerings. This word refers almost exclusively to the leper's cleansing. Two-thirds of the time in the Bible that Assam is used, two-thirds, it's speaking about a leper being cleansed. It's used one-third of the time to describe an offering to atone for a trespass. This word describes both. Assam, the trespass offering, is an offering to atone for sin, and it's an offering that's used primarily to cleanse a leper, to pronounce him 
clean. And when it says that Jesus was stricken for your iniquity and for mine, that's the same word that's used of somebody that is stricken with leprosy. Did Jesus have leprosy? No. But what is leprosy a picture of? Sin. He was stricken not with leprosy, but he was stricken with our sin. The punishment for our sin was upon him. He bore all the wrath of God for all of our sin. And he became our trespass offering. Not only to atone for our sin once and for all, but to say, hey, Glenn over there, he's clean. He's pronounced clean because of the trespass offering that Jesus provided for him. So the offering of Jesus not only forgives our sin, but it pronounces us clean. And that's something that can only be understood through uh, this passage and these words in an amazing way. Um, and then, interestingly enough, that blood was supposed to be what? Sprinkled, right? It was supposed to be sprinkled on him. Uh, in the beginning of Leviticus 14, it talks about that. Look at uh, the, first, or the last couple of verses of chapter 52. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Isaiah 52, 13. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Okay, it's the same picture. And in Hebrews, multiple times, it talks about the blood of sprinkling of the Messiah. Okay, we're not sprinkled with water. Okay, we're sprinkled with the blood. That's biblical sprinkling, okay? The blood of the Messiah. Okay. Um, let's finish, let's finish uh, through verse number 24, at least, because I want to get to this. Uh, well, let's start here next time. We'll start at verse 22 next week, and Lord willing, we'll finish John chapter 10. If you, if you have these handouts, keep them with you. Put them in your Bible in John chapter 10. And next week when we come back together, we'll start at John 10, 22. Does anybody have any questions or comments or anything before we close? Okay. I'll go ahead and pray, and I'll pray for the refreshments that were provided as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for this evening. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. We just pray that you would help us uh, to... Uh, apply these things that we've the these things that we've learned at, at the very least Lord in thanksgiving to you for what you've done for us and we thank you for those that prepared uh, the refreshments we pray that uh, you would uh, help us to have a, a good time and uh, uh, bless and nourish our bodies and help us to have good fellowship together and a good rest of the night and we pray all this in Jesus name Amen. Shalom this is Mark Robinson Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.